Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. I hope everyone is enjoying the summer or winter, depending on which hemisphere you live in. We've had a pretty intense heat wave this week where I live. Temperatures have risen over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 38 degrees Celsius. Each of the last five days here, it's been tough getting the dogs their exercise. But I know you didn't tune in to hear me talk about the weather. You want to hear about today's book, Death Star, by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. I'll get to that in a few minutes, but first, I got another email. So, let me answer that. Today's email comes from Dan in West Virginia. Dan says, My question is in regards to the third Darth Bane book. I'm curious if this was intentionally left out for the reader to discover or if I caught something interesting. Is it possible that Bane survived at the end of Dynasty of Evil? In the prologue, Bane's free hand trembles while he's holding his lightsaber. He relieves the pain by clenching and unclenching his fist. Fast forward to the last paragraph of the book, and Cognus sees Darth Zana doing the same thing. Is it possible Bane's essence transfer was successful? And if so, does this mean that many or even all the Sith Lords that followed, including Zana and Cognus, were Bane? If the transfer was successful, Bane could have potentially moved from apprentices throughout the entirety of the Star Wars timeline. That's a great question, Dan. First off, thank you very much for the email. This has become my favorite part of the podcast, interacting with listeners. So thank you. I didn't intentionally leave this out of the podcast when I talked about Dynasty of Evil. I just forgot to say anything. And it's funny because it's one of those little details in the book that sticks out. Most people I've talked to who have read Dynasty of Evil pointed out, and they have the same question you do. Does it mean Bane's essence survived the transfer into Zana? In short, no, he did not. But it's a little more complex than that. Bane learns about essence transfer studying Darth and Dedu's holocron. It's a dangerous ritual. The person who tries it will have their body consumed by the dark side of the Force. Most of the time in Legends, we see successful essence transfer happen into inanimate objects or a weak-minded supplicant, or a clone body designed specifically for that purpose. Now, I'm not saying those are the only examples of essence transfer, but those are the vast majority. In the essence transfer ritual, it's almost always done in a controlled situation under ideal conditions. When it comes to Bane and Zana, I think there are a couple things going on. 
First, conditions are much less than ideal. Bane hasn't prepared himself or his chosen vessel for the ritual, and he's severely injured. Second, Zana senses something happening right before Bane attempts the transfer. We read about her conscience fighting with Bane when he tries to invade her mind. Remember, one of the reasons Bane even considers Essence transfer is because he was convinced that Zana had not challenged him. He was starting to think Zana was an unworthy apprentice and an unworthy person to inherit the title Dark Lord of the Sith. But of course, she was. She had been preparing for their confrontation for more than a decade. So when Bane attempts the essence transfer, Zana is able to beat him back, proving herself worthy to carry on his legacy and the rule of two. But a small part of Bane's consciousness remained, and that manifests itself in the trembling that Cognus notices in Zana's hand. So thank you for the question, Dan. If you'd like to be like Dan and would like to ask a question or leave a comment of your own, please email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Now it's time for today's book discussion, Death Star by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. It's time to head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Death Star is written differently than other Star Wars Legends books. So I'm going to analyze it a little differently than I do with those books. The narrative is told through the eyes of 11 different characters. Each one observes and learns different things from the others, and the authors take all these different threads and weave them together to tell the story. It's sort of like the different plot lines in an episode of Seinfeld or in the movie Go!, with a sprinkling of Forrest Gump on the side, for those of you that have seen any of those. Or like how the chapters are set up in the A Song of Ice and Fire book series. The difference, of course, is that we know how this story is going to end, with the Death Star's destruction. The stories are told over 75 chapters, and most of them are only three or four pages long, so this recap is going to be a little different because... If I tried to do it the way I normally do, it would become extremely choppy and tough to listen to. Instead, I thought I would talk about each of the 11 character POVs and what I thought about their stories in a broad sense. So, let's start with the civilians. Tila Kars is a Miri Allen architect, and Silat Ratua Dill is a Zalosian who are both prisoners on the hostile planet of despair. The penal colony is home to some of the worst criminals in the galaxy, used as forced labor to construct the Death Star. But Despair is also where the Empire sends political prisoners, and Tila Kars is one of those, arrested for supporting a candidate on her homeworld that opposed the Emperor's policies. Lucky for Tila, her background as an architect is noticed early, and she's taken from Despair to help make the construction plans for the Death Star a reality. Her specialties lie mostly in living space, traffic patterns, and air circulation, and she impresses her Imperial bosses early on, figuring out how to adjust the plans for a series of intersecting corridors to optimize traffic 
while utilizing the existing air conditioning equipment that had already been bought and shipped to the station. Later in the story, Teela questions why a small thermal exhaust port is being installed below the main exhaust port along the Death Star's equatorial trench. Not because of the threat that we, the readers, know it to be, but because Teela argues it's placed in a bad spot to efficiently dissipate exhaust from the station's interior. During the last few months of construction, Teela starts dating a TIE fighter pilot, Lieutenant Villian Dance, another one of the POVs I'll talk about later. After the destruction of Alderaan, Teela joins a group that tries to escape the Death Star and join the Rebellion. Silat Radawa Dil is another member of that group. The Zelosian smuggler is the guy other prisoners and some of the guards go to in order to get things on despair. Dill has been in the penal colony for a long time, and he decides it's time to escape. The only place he can go is up to the battle station in orbit. Dill bribes one of the foremen in charge of loading the supply ships to stow away on a freighter leaving despair. Once on the Death Star, Dill does what he does best, becoming the person who gets stuff for others. Along the way, Dill begins seeing the owner of one of the Death Star's cantinas, and he runs into one of the Imperial Marine Sergeants who was in charge of overseeing the prisoners on Despair. But with the destruction of Despair and Alderaan, the two join the conspirators trying to escape. Now the final civilian POV is Mima Ruths, a Twi'lek woman who runs the Soft Heart Cantina on Coruscant. She doesn't make a lot of money, but it's a comfortable living for Mima and her bouncer, Rodo. A huge, Rajithian human with tremendous strength who's been trained in various underworld fighting techniques. Their lives are upended one night when an arsonist set fire to all the businesses on their block of Coruscant. While Mima and Rodu watch the soft heart burn, she gets an offer from an imperial bureaucrat. The opportunity to run a cantina for two years at an imperial construction site. They'll get a place to stay, a salary, and a small percentage of the cantina's profits. Of course, they agree, and they set up the Hard Heart Cantina in one of the lower levels of the Death Star. The Hard Heart becomes the place where all of the POVs, except the senior officers, go to relax. Mima and Dill start a romantic relationship. Roto starts a friendship with sparring buddy Nova Still. When the group tries to escape the Death Star during the Battle of Yavin, Rodo is killed, sacrificing himself to allow the others to board their shuttle. There are eight Imperial POVs in the book. I'm going to start out with the three senior officers, Darth Vader, Admiral Mutti, and Grand Moff Tarkin. Tarkin, of course, is overseeing the construction of the Death Star. Early in the book, there's an explosion in one of the active construction sites that damages a few floors of would-be living quarters, killing about 20 people. A cursory investigation reveals the explosion was most likely sabotage, and that means rebels. Tarkin requests assistance from Coruscant, and the Emperor sends Darth Vader to assist in interrogating witnesses. Meanwhile, as the Death Star gets closer to completion, Tarkin invites Admiral Dalla for a tour of the battle station. Dalla is not only an impressive officer, the only female admiral in the Imperial Navy, but she's also Tarkin's confidant and lover. When Vader is sent to investigate another act of rebel sabotage on the planet Danuta, 
Tarkin asked Dalla to continue the investigation into the Death Star mishap. But there are other high-ranking Imperials that know about Tarkin and Dalla, including Admiral Mati. So, for the sake of politics, Tarkin eventually sends Dalla away back to the Maul Cluster, where her task force is protecting the Death Star prototype. Soon, Vader returns with the Rebel Blockade Runner, and the events of Episode 4, A New Hope, ensue. As for Mati and Vader's POVs, there's not really much to add that isn't shown in A New Hope. For Mati, the only new things the reader gets are an insight of his thoughts. The chairman of the Imperial Navy respects Tarkin, but he's jealous of his position. The Grand Moff is a new office created just before the book begins. We learn that Mati sees Tarkin as an equal politically, one who has risen through the Empire's military in the nearly two decades since the Clone Wars, and Mati agrees with the Tarkin doctrine that fear is the most efficient way to maintain peace and order. But Mati wants what Tarkin has, control of the Death Star, and he knows about Tarkin and Dalla. Mati hopes to use his knowledge of their ongoing affair to take down his mentor and rival, but of course, we know he doesn't, because Mati is killed on board the Death Star. I'll finish the first part of today's episode with my favorite character in Star Wars, Darth Vader. As I said before, Vader heads up the investigation into the construction explosion, using the Force to interrogate suspects and witnesses. Vader turns over his findings to Tarkin when the Emperor orders him to investigate a rebel break-in on the planet Danuta, where an Imperial research facility houses a copy of the Death Star schematics. Vader tracks the thieves to a rebel blockade runner, the Tantive IV, and Senator Leia Organa of Alderaan. We know what happens next, of course, but the book gives us some insights on Vader's thoughts about Leia, about Obi-Wan Kenobi, and about the final X-Wing pilot that destroys the Death Star. Vader is impressed with Leia's tenacity, her resistance to the Imperial Mind Probe, and her ability to stand up to Tarkin. At one point, Vader even thinks that Leia reminds him of her, but he just as quickly pushes that thought out of his mind. During his lightsaber duel with Obi-Wan, Vader is impressed at how well the old man can still fight. But as his rage continues to rise, he knows there's only one outcome, to kill his former master and get revenge for Mustafar. When Obi-Wan raises his blade and allows Vader to strike him down, disappearing into the Force, Vader gets confused, and for the first time in years, fear grips him, because something has happened in the Force something he doesn't understand. But Vader knows it's not something good for the Empire. Finally, during the Battle of Yavin, Vader comes close to shooting down the conspirators as they try to escape in their shuttle, but just before he fires the killing shot, he senses a powerful force presence coming from one of the X-Wings. Vader breaks off in pursuit, and of course, we know how this story ends. Vader is interrupted trying to shoot down the X-Wing, he and one of the other TIE fighters flying with him collide, spinning Vader's TIE off away from the Death Star. Vader gains control of his ship just as the Death Star explodes. He doesn't exactly know how it happened, but he vows to find out. One thing he's sure of, it has something to do with that X-Wing pilot. Time for a break, 
When we return, I'll hit the five other main characters from Death Star by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry and give you my thoughts overall on the book. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from the Star Wars Legends line. But allow me to take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Lords of the Sith tells the tale of Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader marooned on the planet Ryloth. The two must fight together against a Twi'lek army. But what's more dangerous to the two Sith Lords? The rebels or each other? Find out in Lords of the Sith by Paul S. Kemp. Welcome back into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the podcast where I chat about the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about Death Star by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. The final five POVs in the book are all lower-ranking Imperials. I briefly mentioned two of them in the first part of the show, so let me start with those guys. Lieutenant Villian Dance is a TIE pilot and the leader of Alpha Squad. His previous flying record and his simulator scores put Dance as the 19th best TIE pilot in the entire Imperial Navy. Very impressive. His story begins with his squad ordered to stop a group of workers that have stolen a shuttle and are trying to flee. The shuttle can't outrun the ties, of course, and they have no weapons. Still, Dance and his squad are ordered to stop the shuttle, and if they can't, to destroy it. Dance gives the shuttle numerous warnings, but the prisoners refuse to turn their ship around. Finally, he blasts the shuttle, killing the fugitives. Following the incident, Dance starts seeing Tila cars, and even though they know the relationship won't last, the two have a lot of fun together. That is, until the Rebellion learns about the Death Star and sends a task force to attack the station before construction is finished. The Rebel force consists of three battlecruisers and about 500 fighters. But even though the Death Star isn't finished or fully operational, it greatly outguns the Rebel forces. Dance is one of about a thousand ties sent as a defensive screen. As they wait for the Rebels to attack, the main Death Star gun fires. Now, the blast is only 4% maximum, but it's more than enough to vaporize one of the Rebel cruisers in an instant. The blast calls the Rebel fighters to attack, but they don't take any shots at the ties as they try to fly through the defensive screen, saving all their weapons for the Death Star. The resulting fighter battle is a massacre, with Dance and the ties quickly wiping out the Rebels. Dance destroys 10 Rebels himself, making him a double ace, He's elated at first, but the more he thinks about the incident, the less he's proud of his accomplishments. Killing fugitives in an unarmed shuttle, and destroying ten enemies that didn't even fight back. Still, Dance doesn't consider desertion until the destruction of Alderaan. When the group steals a shuttle during the Battle of Yavin, Dance flies it through the battle, and after the Death Star explodes, he pilots the shuttle to the Rebel base on Yavin 4. Sergeant Nova Still is an Imperial Marine and one of the head guards at the Penal Colony on Despair. He's also a martial arts instructor, an expert in Terrace Kasi. 
One of the reasons Nova is so adept in hand-to-hand -hand combat is his ability to anticipate his opponent's attacks, an ability he calls Blink. The reader, of course, knows that Nova is Force-sensitive, and that continues to play a part in his story. Nova gets transferred to the Death Star to help train Imperial troops. That's when the nightmares start. Nova dreams of battles, one of himself and a group of stormtroopers chasing a man and a Wookiee through the corridors of the Death Star, and another where he and a large man are fighting together against more than a dozen stormtroopers. Nova starts to fear sleep, and he seeks medical help. Eventually, with the help of the meds, Nova is able to get some rest, until, that is, the events of A New Hope. When Alderaan is destroyed, Nova falls unconscious in the shower, and he's found hours later by his bunkmates. His dream about chasing a man and a Wookiee through the Death Star comes true, with Nova even helping the Rebels escape. And his final dream comes true when he and the others try to desert during the Battle of Yavin. When the group is cornered by about a dozen stormtroopers in a hangar bay, Nova and Roto jump into the middle of the Imperials, sacrificing themselves, but buying time for the others to escape. Ten Granite is an Imperial chief gunner and lifetime Navy man, and he takes pride in being the best gunnery chief in the Empire. Still, he's stunned when his request for transfer to the Death Star is accepted. Ten is one of three gunnery chiefs selected for the Death Star assignment, and his team is given the day shift. Ten is gung-ho about the opportunity. He's the man that takes all five shots the Death Star fires in the book. First, before the main weapon is even 50% operational, Ten vaporizes the Rebel cruiser, using only 4% of the weapon's power. Shortly after that attack, Grand Moff Tarkin decides, leaving the Death Star in orbit around despair, to be too much of a security risk. But before leaving the system, Tarkin wants to test the station's firepower against a planet, and he orders the Death Star to destroy Despair. At only 30% power, it takes three shots to completely destroy the planet, with an hour wait in between each shot, while the weapon recharges. But the first shot is more than enough to actually kill everything on the surface. Ten pulls the lever on all three shots, and his disgust grows with each. Because not only were there prisoners on despair, but there were still Imperial troops and civilians, not to mention all the plant and animal life on the planet. Later, of course, Ten pulls the lever, firing the shot that destroys Alderaan, and he finds that terrifying. Killing rebels was one thing. Killing unarmed civilians was another. And not what he signed up for. Finally, Ten is the gunnery chief on duty again at the Battle of Yavin. He doesn't want to pull the lever, and silently pleads for something to happen before he has to. Luckily for Ten Granite, it does. Commander Ator Wrighton is one of the top archivists in the Imperial Navy. He's named Death Star's Chief Librarian. But Wrighton is not like most high-ranking Imperials. He disagrees with most of the Emperor's policies and what the Empire stands for, but he's never really cared enough to try to do anything about it. However, what Wrighton's done throughout his career is gather information, and after he retires, Wrighton plans to write a book with a lot of dirt. When Alderaan is destroyed, Wrighton is the one who comes up with the plan to defect. He intends to be on the shuttle the group steals, 
but when the plan goes awry, Wrighton stays behind to grant the shuttle clearance to escape. Once the ship leaves the medical hangar bay, Wrighton waits in his library to be arrested. The final POV is Captain Uli Divini, a member of the Imperial Surgical Corps who was drafted into service. Uli hates being in Imperial service. He's tried to leave several times, but the stop-loss program forced him to stay, shipping him to various medical facilities throughout the Empire. Uli works on several of the workers injured in the first rebel sabotage attempt and is part of the three-person surgical team that works on Admiral Dalla later in the book after her ship is attacked. Uli also helps Nova Still when the Marine Sergeant tells Uli about the problems he's been having sleeping. Uli is in the Hard Heart Cafe after the destruction of Alderaan when the conspiracy plan to flee the Death Star is hatched. He joins the group and escapes on the medical shuttle during the Battle of Yavin. So that's Death Star, written differently from every other Star Wars book that I've ever read, but it's an entertaining read nonetheless. Now as many of you will know, just about everything in this story that I talked about is contradicted by the events of Rogue One. The Death Star is not being constructed by a team of architects and engineers around the penal colony world of despair. Instead, Galen Erso and his team are the chief designers of the Death Star, and they are working for Orson Krennic. Also, instead of the Death Star blowing up a rebel battlecruiser and the planet Despair in Rogue One, it destroys the city of Jeddah and then is used on Scarif to destroy the Imperial base in hopes to keep the rebels from getting the Death Star plans. So, obviously nothing in this book is going to be made canon. But this book is a lot of fun to read, at least in my opinion. I think the most interesting part of the book is the insight into the characters after the Death Star becomes fully operational. Whether it's the destruction of the penal colony at Despair or, of course, after the destruction of Alderaan. People have had this debate for years about whether... All the Imperials on the Death Star agreed with what happened at Alderaan. And personally, I've gone back and forth on the subject for 25 years, just in my own head. I think my current opinion on the subject is it's impossible for everyone stationed on the Death Star to agree with the destruction of a planet. However, regardless of their intent, regardless of their motive, each person chose to enlist in the Empire, unlike all the characters in this book. I've come to the opinion that I don't really think there were very many civilians on the Death Star, if any. And while I do think there were probably some Imperials stationed on the first Death Star that disagreed with the destruction of Alderaan, I also think they made their choice. They threw in with the Empire. I'm not saying that 
over a million people deserve to die when Luke Skywalker blows it up. But what I am saying is, morally, they knew what the Empire stood for. It wasn't like the Empire just enacted these totalitarian laws overnight. These were policies put into place over the two decades since the Clone Wars. Genuinely, the people who chose to join the Empire, in my mind, thought this was the best way to maintain peace and order throughout the galaxy, mostly through fear. So, while I think it's interesting that we see into the minds of several Imperials in this book who decide to defect and join the rebellion, and we know that that actually happened. We know there are several Imperials in Star Wars that defected and joined the rebellion. But I've come to the opinion that those stationed on the Death Star itself don't get the benefit of the doubt. Many of you may disagree with me. If you do, please send me an email, shoot me a tweet. But at this point in time, and I've gone back and forth about it for 20, 25 years when talking about it with other Star Wars fans. But at this point in time, I'm not giving the benefit of the doubt to any Imperials that were stationed on the Death Star. So before we end this episode, a couple little quick things that I noticed in the book. I noticed two mistakes, not typos, because I think a lot of people can find typos in a book. But I found two mistakes in the book. The first was in one of the chapters told from Tila Cart's POV. She's a Mary Allen architect. She is speaking to a Wookiee. And she's having difficulty communicating with him. There's a passage that says it's virtually impossible for a human to speak Shrewook. Well, she's not a human. She's a Mary Allen. So I noticed that little mistake. And there's another one in one of Admiral Mati's chapters. And many of you may already know about this. The authors of the book originally wanted to name Mati Z Mati. His first name was Z-I. Z or Zai, I don't know how you pronounce it. However, on an episode of Conan O'Brien, George Lucas said that Mati's first name was Conan. So, before the book went to publish, they went back to try to change every mention of Mati's first name in there from Z to Conan. And they got all of them but one. There is one spot in the book where another Imperial officer calls him Z. So, it's not a big deal. Just something that pops out every once in a while. So, time to wrap up on the next episode. It's another book from Michael Reeves and Steve Perry, Battle Surgeons, a Clone Wars novel, book one in the MedStar series. Now, if you follow the show's schedule on Twitter, you know the next episode is supposed to be on August 27th, but I'm being sent to Alaska for work that week. So, it's going to be pushed back a week to September 3rd. Then I'll get back on the regular schedule the following week 
on September 10th with a show about the second MedStar book, Jedi Healer. It's the conclusion of the two-book series. Until then, if you'd like to get in contact with the show, please email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask me a question, send me a message. I really want to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. Remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.